Welcome to the Fargo Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Fargo on FX. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about season four, episode six, titled Camp Elegance. Aaron, what do you think of this episode? Or as uh, Mr. Harvard would say, no doubt, Camp Elegance. Uh, wow. It's got such an extra way of pronouncing everything. Oh, my God. Hmm. Um, I, uh, I okay, I, I think that uh, at the end of the season, this is not going to go down as the show's best episode. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's physically the shortest episode. It's not hmm. a bad episode, but there were a lot of things that I found um, kind of annoying in where I felt like there's some shortcuts taken in the plot. Some things were a little disjointed. Um and, you know, some things that I guess other people, like I know Alan Zepinwall has been talking about all season, um, things I started to finally notice, like just how hard it is for this show to juggle its entire cast and plot. And, you know, like we've seen, there's no, been notable absence of uh, Nurse Mayflower, finally got a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit, and it just completely blew uh, Ethel Rita off the stage. Yeah. So, um and you know, Def, you know, uh, the Marshall Deffy got blown off the stage. Other than a five-second cameo, um, I, 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 you know, I, is that a fatal problem? Does that mean that I'm not enjoying the season? No, uh, but I did notice it. What did you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel a little bit overstuffed. Um, it does feel a little bit disjointed. I think, you know, some of that stuff can be fixed in retrospect. Like I, I came away from this episode thinking, uh. I, I now understood why they included Orietta Mayflower last episode at all, because they wanted mm-hmm. a little bit of time to pass, right? With her struggling with not killing her patients. So, like, in retrospect, I think that worked a little bit better uh, from last episode. And maybe they'll do some of that with the future of these characters. Maybe we'll see that Ethel Rita needed a little time to marinate or something. Um, as it stands... I don't see it. I don't really understand why we would even really bother to include Ethel Reed in an episode like this, um, where there are already so many moving parts and you're spending a large time sort of away from some of the main characters uh, and with characters who are barely there. Um, and, and you know, shine when they're given the spotlight. But other than that, they, they haven't appeared in the show practically, right? Yeah, she's just like... Ethel Rita is just kind of uh, simmering there on the literal back burner. I guess maybe front burner since she was the, she's just up front for 30 seconds and then that was about it. But no, I, now um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the behind the scenes inside baseball of Fargo to maybe explain like why this episode did feel a little bit, can you know, uh, um, herky jerky. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what I'm referring to, Jim? Yeah. Um, I I saw that there was an interview with Noah Hawley and people were talking about it where he said that he re-edited a good chunk of the middle of this season. Yeah, so there was this, uh, the Hollywood Reporter podcast on September 25th where they interviewed Noah Hawley and he mentioned that, uh, I, I guess this is, I, I don't know which way it's supposed to go, but this season has an odd number of episodes and uh, he mentioned that he had pulled parts of other episodes apart and kind of re-edited things to get an extra episode. And I feel like you can kind of see where some of that stuff happens here. And Alan Suppenwall noticed in his review pointed out that like, there's this boxer character, um, uh, one of Lloyd's guys um, by the name of Omi Sparkman, that was clearly intended to have a, be- a bigger backstory. And you say, well, how does he know that? Um, again, this is kind of inside baseball, but the actor playing 
uh, this character is a is billed as a series regular, um, and the actress playing Swanee Cap is not. She's billed as a, at a lower you know level of importance. But if you're watching the show, you clear you notice Swanee has been in three or four times the scenes. That Easily. Omi has been in, like has 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 Omi got more than two or three lines in his whole, um, and th- he sees that as evidence that this character was cut down in either the casting stage, or I'm sorry, the the writing stage. In which case, you'd have to ask, well, why was he billed at such and such, or in the mm-hmm. editing stage? So it, it does feel like Holly really kind of um, Frankenstein um, a few of the episodes together, and there's others like um, you know clearly that. Um, kind of reminiscing flashback that Loy has about Dr. Senator is I think more yeah. evidence that probably was just a sequential scene in the one of the last two episodes. Yep. They pulled it out to kind of do something thematic. And I'm not saying it's not working, but I do think that that's uh, a real challenge when you're in the editing bay and you get a wild hair to do something and you just start, start uh, making stuff happen. Um, yeah, I mean, especially with with the the COVID related shutdowns, right? There's no way to really go back and shoot a bunch of stuff like, oh, well, we want to do this, but you know, we don't have the footage. Well, we got to find a, ma- a way to make it work in the editing room uh, this year. But the temptation to do that, to try to, because like you're seeing all this time and like things happening in the real world, and like, oh man, there's a thread that I could really pull and maybe make it. I, I can I can see why why you you want to do that because you got the opportunity. And I'm again, I'm not saying this is a bad season or even this was a bad episode. It's just this is the first time um, I really kind of saw the the a lot so much of the mishmash that other people that's been bothered other people. Um, this this season part of that mishmash is coming from the fact that this is a large cast um you know it it has very very many characters which is not out of the ordinary for a film in this genre right like there are so many gangster films that have 15 gangsters on the sidelines and one or two main uh gangsters who are meant to focus on and you know sometimes you don't even know their names right they'll be in a couple of scenes they'll have important roles um like they take a character someplace to uh have them killed have them uh wiped off the map it, oh polly we don't have to worry about polly no more <laughs> that's the thing like they're it's it's not unusual in this genre to have these kinds of large ensemble casts uh and so I feel like the show is trying to do something that we've seen many times before, and somehow it's it's not quite connecting. Um, and I don't I don't think it's awful. I, I've really enjoyed a lot of individual scenes, but as a whole, like um, the the whole series or the whole season has felt a little disjointed. Now I'll push back a little bit on that because I've been I feel like I've been liking this season more than a lot of people have, and I think that one of the reasons I did is because like the f- what this show pulled in the first two seasons with the fish NATO and the UFO so shook me tonally to my core that now I'm like, well, fuck it, that's just what this show does. Like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna have, and, and you think back to the original Fargo movie, which is kind of the you know the the sets the emotional tone. You've got uh, Steve Buscemi plays a ridiculous. 
a terrible, terrible character. You've got, uh, you know, all kinds of inept criminals that can still do dangerous things. They can still kill people. They can still, mm-hmm. you know, have outsized uh, influences on the plot. Um, it's just kind of the nature of Fargo that there's going to be some scenes that make you laugh, some scenes that make you squirm, some scenes that make you want to question the state of humanity. Uh, and they all kind of, uh, you know, live side by side and scene by scene. So, I don't know whether I finally stopped worrying and and learned to love the Fargo, <laughs> um, or or what? Because I know a lot of people like you know like I'm a huge fan of Alan Supplewall. I read his reviews all the time. He did not have as nearly as many narrative problems with those kind of tonal shifts in season one and season two as I did. So maybe he's feeling it now. This is the this is a Fargo too far yeah. for him. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. You, you got anything else to say? Or should we move on to the episode proper? Let's move on. So as per usual, I've um, organized my notes into different categories of business. We got smutney, uh, uh, some brief smutney business, uh, some substantial canon and fada business, and then a little bit of Mayflower business at the end. Uh, smutney business, we can discuss this in about 30 seconds to be done with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ethel Rita steps off her bus. Her parents uh, sing happy birthday, which is, oh, let's, there's a whole different tone to this because... Uh, you know, in the meantime, Loy has come and shook their tree, and uh, uh, Marshall Deffy came and shook her tree, and they're all shook, but they're going through the motions here. And in the darkness, as she blows out her candles, standing over her right shoulder, the terrifying visage of Mr. Snowman. Yeah, I thought I was on to something last week. I, I can't even remember if we talked about this on the podcast or after the podcast. Um, I thought I was on to something with Snowman being like, the the stain of racism that's always going to be haunting these people uh, throughout the decades uh, of their existence in America. Now I don't really know what to make of it. Is it just a general dread uh, surrounding their lives, a danger? What put you off that theory? Because like I don't think that there's anything that's changed in that analysis, uh, the specter of racism in the family. Um... Yeah, it just seems out of context in this particular scene. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, there's this a theory in our mailbag about this could be a literal personification of death. I do think that, uh, you know, the show has said that this is a story about how people get cursed and, and, you know, like houses aren't cursed, people are cursed. So when people go from one, uh, place to another, that curse can, can follow them. And I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, systematic, uh, overt racism in this season, systematic racism. Those are things that, that, that qualify. So like, I, I mm-hmm. don't know that that's a, a terrible theory. It, it does feel like that there is something actual that, that this, this is, a, this is a real dude that had some kind of bad end and might've yeah. been at the hands of Zell Mare, might've been at the hands of, uh, Ethel Rita's mom, who I can never, De- Debril. Yeah. And, and and it might have been at the hands of their father or mother or aunt or something like that, but like some kind of uh, you know uh, blood blood oath, blood debt is following them. Uh, but also, like I, I mentioned, there's also um, there's also an, a, a chance that this is going to be subverted. That like this is going to be some kind of protector figure rather than uh, a, a, like a menacing haunting because he's not doing anything. Yeah, he's acting creepy, but. Yeah, he's not he hurting. He might have yet. tried to kill Swanee last episode or a couple episodes ago. Did he? Because M- like, maybe. it's hard to I tell. Mean, 
it's a paranormal being. He's he's having some kind of in, influence on the real world. But like you know, I'm, I'm sixth sense in this. I'm thinking this is somebody maybe wanting to make contact <laughs> and be heard rather than. But who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, but that's that's the smutty business for the episode, and uh, we're just gonna go away. Oh, I did enjoy the continuity of the dent in the cake that she had tried to frost over because <laughs> they gave yeah. Zero a big big slice of, as a cake last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to canon business, shall we? Sure. Uh, uh, poor Otis Weff, Detective Weff, he's going to get caught up in his canon business. He's going to get caught up in the fat of business. I almost had official police business, but it was just too entwined with the uh, the crime business to, to break it out into its own category. Yeah. Uh, he arrives home. He gets jumped and wrapped up at the shower curtain. Yeah, I love how uh, when he gets home, they they have a camera sitting in his apartment and you just hear the knock and you're like, Oh, okay. He's home. Right. <laughs> you can hear it from outside the door. It's like, he's announcing his presence every time a few seconds uh-huh. before he enters the scene. Yeah. He's like uh inverse Kramer. <laughs> right. Right. Kramer just busts through and is like, nah, this guy, this guy is a different kind of energy that uh, uh, politely comes through after announcing himself five times. Um, but he gets jumped in the shower curtain and start. They, uh, someone's asphyxiating them. You, you you know it's one of uh, Cannon's boys, and you think it's like, oh, this is like several times this episode. I thought, well, someone's going to die. This is interesting. We're mm-hmm. we're in that part of the season. It's appropriate, but no. Uh, Loy steps forward and with a knife pokes a hole so he can so he can breathe, and then informs uh, through a pretty long menacing monologue that uh, he now owns Detective Weff. In the terms of of property, what do you think of the scene? Uh, I like it. I like it. I I found myself uh, on second watch, sort of wishing that we had a little more, um, I guess, movement on this part of it. I, I, I don't know. By the end of this episode, the war has inched another step further, uh, certainly. But I guess like menacing the cop was not on my uh, number one list of priorities here. I don't know. Yeah. I, I keep waiting for the, the mafia war to break. But look, we're, we're still five episodes from the end of the season. It, if the war breaks out too soon, like once the war breaks out, it's got to be just an all out fight to the end. Right. Um, so so you can't do that too early. Out. Like, like both sides. Yeah. But, but, not in terms of like, oh, we're walking into your HQ and gunning people down. It's not yeah, like the yeah, war yeah. we've seen in past episodes. Like Fort Sumter has been attacked, but battle lines have not quite formed and and, and clashed yet. But both sides, uh, both sides are all in in the war. Their only question yeah. is, is the other guy all in? They're still know? making strategic moves as opposed yeah. to making actual like violent physical moves here. They believe there's an element of surprise to be taken or something like right. that. Still talking um, about negotiation, that, that kind of thing. But you need that. I mean, we're halfway through the season, right? You don't want the yeah. war to break out too early. Thematically, I thought the scene was pretty strong because he draws a parallel between, you know, uh, what it's like to be owned versus the, you know, the 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 legacy of of black people here in the country. And um, it, like, the, I'm not just fighting. I'm not just fighting the Italians and I'm not just fighting, you know, City Hall and fighting this mindset, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I thought that was that was pretty good stuff. But it's like it, it's pitched at a level that I don't like. I, I don't know it would convince anyone that doesn't kind of I don't know maybe it does maybe it does um and it, it, it feels it like convince someone that that didn't believe it already 
and it's also like the fifth time the show has done this. You know, it's it's becoming less and less subtle, I guess, every time. Um, yeah. But yeah. But on the other hand, th- does Loy really care? I guess is he trying? He's not. The, the whole point is he's not trying to convince Wef. This is kind of like just him. Uh, this is just cold blooded smack to say to somebody before you assert, you know, a dominance over them. Sure. Um, but I don't know. It's uh, like Wef is in this like weird position, and they they have a lot of different ways to um, reinforce this. Like there's this uh, Upton Sinclair, the jungle quote that was later in the episode about there's two ways to cage a man. Hmm. Uh, one is to put bars around him and everything he wants and loves is on the outside. The other is to put bars around the things he wants and loves and he's stuck on the outside. And like, I feel like that's like, it's it's not literally true in Weff's case, but like that kind of uh, bars within and without, like he is just completely hemmed in. And, mm-hmm. and as we pan out of the apartment, we find out that Marshall Deffy saw this whole fucking thing yeah. Didn't do and just laid back. So, what I mean, the implication here is that Marshall Deffy is staking out uh, uh, Otis Weff, thinks he's crooked, saw all of Loy Cannon's gang go into his apartment. Mm-hmm. What was his assumption? Like, I, I, I don't because he thinks he they, he works for the Italians too. Like, I, I, I he's he's he doesn't care if um, Weff lives or dies. Is what I'm getting at. Sure. I I agree with that. He's not about to, you know, bust in and try and save him. Um, Also, I wonder how much he cares in general about the laws that potentially are being broken here. Um, There's there's so many question marks around Duffy as a character uh, Mm. and and his intentions, I guess, that I'm not even sure he cares to step in at any point like he could almost be observing this just for his own uh amusement right i i don't well, know that i i i, I sometimes I, I think i take too much raylan givens in because you know there's a right, u.s right. marshal on justified where he would famously come in and there would be prostitution going there'd be drugs on the table illegal weapons he's like i don't care mm. i just want my man i'm just i'm here for the the Marshall business that I'm on and I don't give a fuck about that other stuff. So like is he actually going to get involved between the cannons and the fadas or is he just but but this is going above and beyond. No, I guess not because he's on the trail. This is still inconsistent him being on the trail yeah. Zalmar and Swanee because right, he might have just followed Loy's guys over to Wef's house and not be staking out Wef. Yeah, he saw them pack them into. There's drove off. I wonder if it implies that he was outside and he saw everything that happens to Gaetano next. Possible, possible. I mean, surely he'd follow a car that had those women in it. Uh, speaking of that scene, we go to Gaetano listening to opera and stabbing dress forms. This guy, I continue to take not seriously. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what the fuck is this? This is some weird shit. It is. Like, it's intentionally weird. Um, they're, I, they're telling me this guy's tough, but they're not showing me. Well, they're showing you that he's not really. Like, if you look at the rest of this scene, there's so much like tell- just fumbling with guns, dropping bullets, shaking in his boots when someone's outside at the door, preemptively firing into his own guy. Like, th- there's so much around him that says he's not this badass that he pretends to be. Uh, yeah, imagine like if. Um- Josto is in the opposite position. They ship him over to Italy for some, you know, to handle some kind of family business. And he goes in Italy and he's got his 
gangster suit on. He's like, yeah, man, they call me, you know, Pezio Vante over in America because I'm the big shot. I'm the 50 caliber. I got a, I got a list of dead men. I, I, I personally helped Roosevelt, you know, put down the fucking German bunt movement. Like he's, he's just like, we can't, we haven't verified any of this information, <laughs> right? You know, he's just been, he's just been talking and getting other people to do his dirty work for him. I'm starting to wonder if this guy's just all bark. Because I mean, he's definitely he not, did not all seem bark. like a tough guy. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Like, is he tough in the face of tough men? Because he's tough in the face there of floor sweepers and bartenders, right? Who have no weapons, who have no chance yeah. of of stopping him. But yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a fair question. I do think this is a sloppy scene. Um, you know, for the reasons again, I I I, I don't know that's intentional <laughs> that this guy's supposed to be a joke or not. But I did think it's slo- um. Uh, sloppy because like you know uh there's a lot of gunplay uh gaetano ventilates this guy by mistake swanee in the middle of winter in kansas city Uh sneaks up on this back porch opens up a window this guy's three foot away from it he doesn't feel the chill he doesn't feel the draft he doesn't hear this rickety ass 1950s window (laughs) sane and (laughs) stupid shaking in his boots I mean, maybe like like maybe the like I and in in real life he would be probably deafened from firing that six six shooter well, six yeah. times inside, but you don't feel the draft, listener. I don't know where you're at. It's pretty cold <laughs> here at tail of October. I'm toasty warm in my little house. If someone opened the door across the room, I'd feel it. I mm-hmm. don't know. I, I felt like it was a little sloppy. Headshot. It's a. It's just a. You just graze the skull. Yeah, that can that can work. Um, but, but yeah, I, I that's don't know. that's almost like fish nato levels of of coincidence. Like technically, yes, you could probably shoot a man in the head and not kill him, but yeah. would it incapacitate him immediately and not kill him? Uh, yeah, would it do? Would it do better than just just going behind him and club him in the back of the head with the gun? I don't know. It's it's yeah. it's not the worst thing. It's just a little bit a little bit loosey goosey. Uh, they needed this to happen, and they staged it in such a way that it did. But um, there's also uh, I don't know if it's a nice moment. It's just this little meta thing where he gets a shot off, um, or well, uh-huh. not not gets a shot off. He pulls the trigger, um, but of course his his gun's only half loaded, right? And so the chamber is empty, which makes this sort of a roulette game, like a mm-hmm. Russian roulette, and he's firing at Zalmer roulette. I I don't know, mm-hmm. like it, that's got to be intentional, right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty fun. That's pretty fun. Um, so the the part B to the scene is he comes to and he's chained in kind of this makeshift boxing ring in this gym that uh, Loy Cannon owns. And Loy Cannon starts t- t- telling about Sugar Ray Robinson. And he's like, he gets started to tell the story of how a man will do anything to get his first break. But I don't, it's weird because I felt like he got bored in the middle of, st- like there was a, there was a, but you, what you don't know about Sugar Ray, and but then they just kind of like decided not to finish that story, um, and then he introduces this other guy, Omi Sparkman, who we've seen in the background. The guy's got a dead eye. We find out that he is a boxer. Probably got his dead eye, uh, getting his head beat in in the ring. Uh, he's going to have uh, this guy beat the shit out of Gaetano. Mm-hmm. Um, Gaetano that, seems to put on his tough guy act again and and start laughing in the face of. Uh, potentially his death. I mean, that's what Lloyd says it is. You know, this Doctor yeah. Sinner is the mistake that got you killed. So maybe this guy's the the tough guy too. But I, that's the thing is like this speech felt like parts of four other different speeches. 
that ended up with like you know they say one man's life is a whole string of mistakes what did the fuck did this have to do with the other two aborted parts of this story well just remember dr senator's the mistake that got you killed and it not got him killed i the thing (laughs) that that works about they can write they can this show can write some of the best dialogue and the best scenes that i've i've seen on television i don't know that this is particularly one of them yeah the connecting stuff doesn't connect as well with me um but I think the other thing is like it's frustrating sometimes to watch what's going on because uh, all of these guys are still acting on imperfect information. Like Loy Cannon's not sure that Gaetano's on the outs with the Fadas, yeah, or yeah. at least with J- Josto. So he's can't kill him. The logical thing to do is to kill him. Mm-hmm. But he also has to get his son out. And all, we're all, I'm also kind of, I guess I was kind of shocked to find how little Josto cared about Zero. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. That might make that. That actually, I think, tra- tracks out. Um, we then see this scene, this odd scene, where uh, this is where it, it definitely feels like disjointed. Where he has this reminiscent of, I guess, a scene in the last episode that we didn't see, where Probably. him and and Doctor Senator hatch a plan to get Satchel back from the Fadas. Well, they don't um, even hatch that- the plan, right? They just imply that Loy has a plan. Uh, yeah, of some kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I, I'm I'm assuming we're going to see, you know, that's the, this whole weft gambit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this, like, I tried to find out about this painting. I couldn't find anyone talking about it. I couldn't find a search. But there's this rather striking painting of a black man beheaded at the feet of this another black man dressed in these regal red robes. And he's wiping a sword on his garments. And there's blood down the street. I don't. I don't know what historic event this is being alluded to. I don't know who painted this painting. Um, I would say like it's a depiction of like black on black crime, which mm-hmm. is an uh, which is an odd thing for this story to address because it's not about that at all. No, no, it's um, not. And a lot of times it's uh, kind of a dog whistle for like, well, we don't have to worry about violence in cities because it's black on black crime. They just need to stop killing each other. Like you know. Ninety percent of white white people killed isn't white people killing white people like <laughs> right. That's just crime, we kill the people right? we kill the people we live around. America's a fucking segregated uh, country, so uh-huh. there you go. Anyway, I but I have no idea. If you have any suggestions, Fargo at baldmove dot com. Especially if you know what the painting is, because like it was a striking painting. I thought it was very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like it felt weird because he's talking about well, if you rescind the satchel, it's going to be World War Three. I mean, we've been talking. This has been like three episodes back were were in world war three so yeah it's just a weird scene weird scene um the cannon gang then decides to snatch up detective weff in broad daylight which it does like does i mean they did i guess a decent job of painting weff as being on the outside of his own police force like his captain even kind of suspects him as being being corrupt or bent but, like, holy hell, it does seem like at some point you could just be like, hey, guys, thin blue line, I'm getting pinched by both of these gangs, let's 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 do something about it, and, <laughs> you know, it feels weird in the gang, and anytime gangsters come after cops, I feel like that's always, like, that, that's, that's where, that's when, that's when they're, they're on their way down the drain. Like, you can do a oh, lot yeah. of things. I mean, this is desperation, for sure. Um and, you start murdering judges and murdering cops, and that is when you lose. But I don't think they're telling me that story, so it's weird. And it works, I think, um, 
as an intimidation tactic because like the you know it's similar to like if if uh, let's say a person has a gun point a single person has a gun pointed at a group of five people and and they decide they're going to rush him and take that gun well the first person to do it is getting shot you know so weff might realize the first person to call uh to to call an end to this this gang war uh from the police side is going to get shot and that's him right now right He's the guns trained on him, so maybe he's too much of a chicken to actually try and do anything about it. Yeah, and they all. This just goes back to Godfather, you know, Michael Corleone. Hey, let's go kill this cop. You can't kill a cop; it's against the rules. What about a crooked cop? You know, what <laughs> uh-huh. if you use the 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 t- papers to take? The, but they're not telling that story of 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 Lloyd. Lloyd doesn't have those advantages. So the Michael Corleone exception of like, well, what if it's a crooked cop? Doesn't apply. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, I feel like a lot of the stuff in this episode needed to happen to get to the other part of the season, but not all of it makes strict tactical logistic sense. And um, yet, it's the stuff I like most about this episode. I feel like setting up this predicament, this uh, these thorny situations that Wef has caught in, are like the best parts of it. I, yeah. I like to see him having to make a choice here. Right? Is he gonna? Is he going to be loyal to this to the one who brung him to the dance, the Italians, or is mm-hmm. he going to switch sides when he's faced with an actual threat of violence, uh, an impending threat of violence? Right? Yeah. It, it, I don't know. It's an impossible choice to make because you're you're either sealing your doom in the moment or you're sealing it in the future. I also li- really like Chris Rock's performance because he's got a little bit of that comedic thing in there. Like he says, like you got you got a bad you got a badge, ain't you? And a gun, mm-hmm. like in the same tone of voice that when he's like, pretending to be his dad and talking about how like you know you got to let the Robitussin get to your bone, boy. Like your <laughs> Robitussin, it, it's it's just I think it's really funny the way he's talking. About it. You got you got a gun, ain't you? You got a badge. Yeah. Um, it's uh it's it's pretty funny. But on the other hand, it is a little cavalier. Because you're trusting this dude who's hanging on by a thread mm-hmm. to his like emotional stability, mental stability. He's on the th- edge of a mental breakdown. You're putting him on an enormous amount of stress. You're going to send this dude into the heart of the, the lion's den to take your your to rescue your cub? Like, ah, it feels yeah. like it feels a little foolhardy. Because I think Lloyd loves his kid and would be devastated if his if his kid dies. So I, mm. it's 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 weird to me. Okay, this is a point in my notes, Jim, where we switch over to the Fada business. Uh, as we see Josto meeting with the consigliere Eb- uh, Ebel. I finally learned this guy's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not pronouncing it just right. Ebel Ebel. Uh, Ebel has come back from New York. He was gone all last last episode. Uh, <laughs> And the Fadas took advantage of the his sober judgment and leadership being gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says New York's got two demands uh, for them to back Josto as being the capo of the family. One, he's got to fix things with the cannons. And it's deliberately left ambiguous about whether fixing is bringing them back to the table to make a deal or killing them. I don't think New York yeah. cares either way. I think Ebel has his, his uh, opinion on which one's better. And he's got two weeks to do it. He's got two weeks to do it. The other thing he has to do is make things right between his brother and him. <laughs> I love how the scene is cut um, or, or how it's structured, you know, because he gets the first demand out, which is fix this thing in two weeks. He gets the second demand delayed by the announcement that his brother has been taken. He tries to play it off. as like, well, he must be dead. 
and then th- they get to the second requirement, which is that they fix things with his brother. Uh, and, you know, that puts a wrench in, in his but his plan I, was just to let his brother die. You know, pretend like he's well, dead. I don't understand why that. I, as he points out, if the cannon gang kills him in the middle of the war, what yeah. the hell could he? There's no. There's he can't be expected to, to work it out. Right. Yeah. So, like, I. And I, again, there's the incomplete information. Loy doesn't understand the, you know, antipathy, I don't think, between uh, the Fadas. And Fada doesn't under, doesn't know that, uh, I don't know. Like, I, 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 I don't understand why this complicates it. The show treats it like, oh, well, you've got to rescue your brother now. And then a beat later, they have a scene where he reveals that, no, actually, I'm going to do the thing that seemed like it was the obvious thing to do, which is just let him die, you know? I I, I, well, I didn't quite understand what they're going with that. Yeah, I agree. It's not. It doesn't seem like there's a super strong correlation between the two. But I, I guess the the way I looked at it is the consigliere is the Ebal is or Ebal is the guy who's kind of communicating with New York, and you need him to be telling New York that you tried to cooperate, you tried to make it work, right? And if Gaetano isn't known to be dead. And Evel knows that you are kind of not trying to save him. He might report that back to New York. Although I don't know what mm. kind of breach of trust that is with your capo or whatever. Seems like that would be going against the family. Um, but maybe right. serving the greater family. Yeah. yeah hard to say. Um, so so yeah. that's my interpretation is like because the consigliere is sitting right there going uh, like observing him not trying to save his brother. That might look bad and that might cause, uh, you know, further problems. Yeah, but that's pretty like, generous because I don't think they make that super explicitly clear. Yeah. Uh, so then you got him confronting Calamita, which uh, this is just uh, again, this is some weak shit. Like, whose side are you on? We know what side he's on. You know what side he's on. What is this? this well, is inco- this is criminal incompetence, which tells me Josto is probably going to end in badly. But so Josto's too soft. Uh, Josto needs way. to be, be be talking about having this guy take a ride. Uh, this episode and he does he punishes him right like when he says go teach him about loyalty he's talking about probably beating the shit out of him if not killing him straight up really you think so oh yeah oh yeah it's Uh, weird to say that in front of the guy um especially since it you know the Kalamita doesn't seem like he's in for an ass beating the way he's going um, well well, that's his plan right because like he says later in in the episode well I thought he was talking scene. about Wef. I thought he was talking about he was talking Calamita t- telling Wef like show tell him you know teach him about loyalty, which is why Calamita was so ha- uh, heavy handed and demanding with him. Hmm, and, and but then like, he calls for for Wef to be. Well, then they go. Hmm. I don't know about that. So maybe go, you're right. Maybe you're right because they go grab maybe, him. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's but it's like it's it is a little. I mean, your interpretation I think is is not like out of left field, um, and, and they and don't. I don't think mine is a hundred percent certain. They don't get to the revel the resolution of that either. Um, every everybody right. who's in that scene is still sort of out in the wind. I guess Calamita has gone over to, uh, Justo's place and and grabbed yeah. Wef. So maybe you're yeah. right. Um, Calamita also like um. I don't understand. Nothing he said should have talked himself out of anything. He's like, come on, boss. Right. I've known you since you were a baby. That's a fucking problem. Uh-huh. He doesn't take Josto seriously. Uh, I don't take Josto seriously, and I didn't even know him when he shit in his pants, you know? <laughs> so, 
then we have uh, this interesting split screen. Well, he's, so, so he is going to clearly throw Calamita under the bus, right? Like th- that's the thing. He his plan here that he lets slip to Antoon is that he's going to make yeah. it look like uh, Calamita has gone rogue under Gaetano's orders. Let them kill Gaetano because Calamita has killed Satchel, right? Uh-huh. That's the plan. So, so you're probably right about the the fact that. Um, they might be talking about Weff when he says teach him a lesson about loyalty, but also he is going to give up Kalamita. Yeah. I, but why the subterfuge? Why wouldn't he have just Kalamita go and kill the guy's son? Like, it's like, well, you don't want to order that. Cause it'll be like, all of this is in kind of happening in front of the, the consigliere. So it's like, I, I, it's, it's weird. It's like, I, I, you're right. I understand the on-the-face machinations of it, but like mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like that's the way you would go about it. But then again, it's a little blurry for me because I, you know, you're dealing with incompetent criminals. Right. The only one, that, right. the only time the incompetence bothers me is when it's Loy Cannon, and I sure, thought that sure. like his plan on getting his boy back seemed harebrained and and not serious, like a fifty-fifty coin flip at best. And do you do that with your youngest son? I don't know. Yeah. Um, we then have the split screen of Josto and Cannon, which I think is I I thought was trying to show the difference between the seriousness and studiousness of, you know, like even as he's plotting this gang war, like, you know, Cannon is like going over his numbers and like I'm still obsessed with his business where Josto is distracted about the silk lamp by his desk and, yeah. you know, like all these like trappings of power. He's just not. And it, it's the difference between. The difference in, between a guy who has handed something renovated and a guy who's built something from the ground floor up, mm. but yeah. So we didn't. Then we have a ne- another thematic scene where uh, you've got Rabbi Milligan, um, which I think it's a nice touch that like, rabbis are t- traditionally known as teachers, uh, and he's literally this guy's teacher. And they're reading a quote from Upton Sinclair's "The Jungle." Uh, where he it's it's this quote of this man who's a he's a working class stiff he's been out of his job he's down to his last few pennies he's eating stale bread and he's realizing oh my god i'm going to starve like i've got like maybe a week or two or three left and i'm going to starve and everywhere i go for a handout authority is giving me a face in the boot and there's hundreds of guys just like me so like the odds of any one of us getting out of the situation, it's a man essentially learning he's going to starve to death in the middle of, you know, one of the wealthiest cities in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting the fact that that is uh, that is resonant for a lot of people uh, nowadays. Yeah. But um, so they got they got him they and they got him uh, talking about that. This is also where you got the quotes about the guy who's you got bars on the outside, bars on the inside. Um. And it's great this shot shot of like Weff kind of stalking Satchel. And the way they cut it, I thought was really good. It's really it built a lot of tension. Like they rapidly cut between Weff reaching for his gun, uh um uh, Satchel reading the the story, uh Rabbi kind of like sizing this guy up and being like, Okay, maybe I should reach for my gun. And then mm-hmm. they break the tension with fucking Kalamita. Uh, I thought it was a good. This is one of the best scenes in the in the in the episode. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they take Wep outside and they commit another unforced error. Jim, you've seen a lot of gangster films. Uh, you, where do you sit, the guy in the organizations you don't trust? <laughs> in in the front seat. 
yeah, to the do, right do you, do you, with the guy do, behind do you. Him, do you give a man with a gun that you don't trust? Do you let him sit behind both of you? Nobody back there babysitting. No, no, you definitely don't. It's two unforced errors because not only are these Italian gentlemen just totally bad gangsters, but also Weff, this was his this was his way out. You let him drag it like halfway between where you are and where you're going. Pop, pop both of those guys. Go mm-hmm. back, get the kid. <laughs> now that you've you know, peeled off half of the the muscle in the house, and then dra- like I the, I I would have bought him being a lot more trapped if he was sitting in that passenger seat with some unknown goon with a gun to yeah, him. For sure, I, I don't I don't under I don't understand I don't understand why they did that. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That seems like a sloppy mistake. Yeah, but but so, they're sloppy. I mean, they're not you know <laughs> they're not the best Italian gangsters. But as Weff, I guess, you know, again, Weff is not got, he's got a lot of problems, right? But this, and, and maybe he's just so, you know, he's so spiraling inside his, his mind that he isn't able to take advantage of this. But I just feel like, I just feel like it is, uh, it was a screenwriting error. Like they just, they just yeah. messed, they just messed up. They messed up the dynamics there um, and weren't, weren't even aware of it, unfortunately. Uh, so the other part of Josto's plan um, which is to get and this this character named Antoon, um, to go to the house, tell Rabbi to 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 go meet him, uh, Josto, and then take the boy for a drive. And we all know what that means. Um, poor Antoon knows what it means, but he's he he's not sure he can do it. Um, and I think some of this stuff is is some of the best in the episode too. Yeah. Do you think it's weird that? Uh, that Rabbi Milligan didn't suspect anything. He, he does very much just like, oh, the boss wants me. Okay, put on my coat and go. Oh, I got to yeah. go by myself. Okay, yeah. no problem. He, a little bit, a little bit, but also, I I think he has more trust in this organization than maybe he should. <laughs> you know, maybe. for a guy who I don't know has seen how fickle this can be. It it. It seems, yeah, a little strange. And I, I guess, like, I... Antoon was shocked. I guess I was, too. Because you know, I'd almost forgotten that Zero's not Josto's son. Yeah. It's just his little brother uh-huh. um, that came along a long time after him to his dad that he had kind of a complicated relationship with. So you suddenly went from having a valuable hostage to, eh. Mm-hmm. But... I'm kind of surprised that uh, I'm kind of surprised Rabbi Milligan didn't get that math either. He was a little too, and and they put they showed that he goes he does these errands a lot. You know, he has a standard routine with Satchel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought it was weird that at this stage in the war he wasn't a little bit more, you know. But what could I? On the other hand, what could he do? Just defy the boss? Yeah, I mean, J- Josto is everybody's playing like big making big fucking bets in this episode um mm-hmm. and they're doing them on barely their plans like i look at josto's plan and it's like okay he could hold on to satchel and use him as a bargaining chip to get his brother back oh but he doesn't want his brother back right his brother's a nuisance and a problem sure so instead he's going to burn his only card and by having antoon kill satchel and then trying to blame it on Calamita, hoping that they'll kill his brother in retribution and that that will sort of 
even things out somehow or that he can rely then on New York to bring in the muscle he needs to win this thing. It's like it's a huge bet, a huge bet. And he's willing to just go with it on a whim, seemingly. Um, I thought they did a really good job selling Antoon as just being a guy who can't really do this. Like, um, but still some doubt, yeah. like, cause he also ha- keeps making these allusions to like not wanting to go back, not wanting to, and and they, you know, I think is a pretty good sketch of a guy, like almost a, a, a nice short film that they made here about this guy. Yeah, we've talked about how in The Walking Dead they try and do this constantly, right? Like make a character a character in the very episode you're going to kill them. Uh, here it works, and I don't know if it's just because the writing is so much better uh, in these scenes or if it's something else going on here uh to me it's the writing but yeah this is risky this is hard to do it's not just the writing it's also that like we don't need to feel a certain way about antoon he's not the point of the scene you know it's like he's not making heroic defining sacrifice he's just a pawn that gets shot um and also they've done some character work like this this guy Mm -hmm. with paulo was the guy standing at the bar drinking limoncello in like episode two why Gaetano was you know making his first uh crazy eyes pitch uh so like i I, it's not like i didn't know this guy um i didn't recognize a little bit of a a, a little bit of a cowardly lion type dude anyway but um so here and and you could you tell this guy also is like, come on, boss. What about Zero? I don't give a shit about Zero. What about Gaetano? Ah, they said to try to make peace with Gaetano. Mm-hmm. So he goes and, and does all that. Rabbi doesn't suspect the thing. Here's this. There's like the fourth unforced error in this episode. Josto goes, hey, okay, Rabbi, you're back in the gang. Go see Ebel or Ebel for your assignment. And he goes, well, what about the kid? The kid's done. I thought the whole point of getting Rabbi away from the kid was to keep Rabbi from trying to protect him or do something to disrupt it or whatever that did like, but was it just an accident Did Josto just really mean, Hey, I need a new soldier because if he had just said, don't worry about the kid, the kid will keep at Antoon's house uh, for as long as you're needed. Just go talk to doc. Just go talk to uh, the consigliere. This episode's done. Like Satchel's gets his yeah. brains blown out, or maybe not, because Antoon doesn't have it in him. But that's a I bad don't choice of words. Uh, yeah, it's foolish. Yeah. So, like, did Josto not know that Rabbi Milligan was getting really attached to Satchel and seeing him kind of as a father figure, guardian, protector? No, I. So I think he, the Josto, believes in. For for whatever fucking reason, because he himself doesn't show these qualities, but loyalty. Uh, he thinks that his guys are loyal to the to the end, and he can tell them absolutely whatever. Because look at how he handles his plan with Antoon, right? He he le- he spills all the beans on his plan. Like he's gonna throw Calamita under the bus. It's gonna be uh, yeah. Satchel's gonna be killed. Like all all the stuff with Antoon telling him his plan before it's even started to be carried out. I think he does the same thing with Rabbi here. He thinks, well, if I say the kid's done, the kid's done, and Rabbi is just gonna go along with it. Especially since the rabbi had made that big speech about like, hey, you know, I'm loyal. Look at me. I told you this thing. I acted on behalf of the family. I'm always looking out for family. I, I, I guess, I guess I can see that. I guess I can see that. But but it's um, it's it's hypocritical, right? Because he himself is trying to get his brother killed. There is no sure. loyalty there, right? But then again, his brother fucked him over first too. Like it's, 
Yeah. You know, yeah, but business, that's, that, that's business more all family, part of the game, I think. Yeah, business yeah, family yeah. country, right? And I guess business is taking precedence here. Yeah. So the rabbi correctly interprets that this is bad for Satchel, uh, rushes back to Evil's or um, Antoon's house and shakes his wife and says, what about the kid? Um, so he kills a Fada goon to show that he's serious and he's now committed. You know, he's now mm. he's now gone against the family. And she apparently tells him, gives him an idea about where he might have gone. Uh, and then we get this scene, this, this wonderful scene where the episode's title derives its uh, its name from Camp Elegance, which I'm not sure. I looked this up. Um, I don't. I think this is a fictitious thing, um, like like the name of it, but maybe not. I, I I tried. I spent like 15 minutes trying to find Camp, you know, Camp uh, Elegance, Italian POWs, whatever. Yeah. But that's what it is. It's it's a place where uh, when uh, Americans captured the Italian fascist uh, soldiers. Uh, they took them to be held till after the war. And he he cites this uh, Monte Cassino campaign. That was one of um, one of the last. Uh, it's funny because it's funny the synchronicity because this was all uh, a loose part of the plot of Westworld too. But this whole Winter mm-hmm. Line campaign where the Allies were trying to push into fascist Italy and seize the joint uh, German-Italian occupa- occupation. And I guess this is like one of the major battles that like, kind of broke the back. It happened. It started in like the dead of winter in January, which makes sense that, you know, Antoon is starving. He's a soldier. He's eating his boots. He's eating his belt. So there's a nice little bit of like background color. And then Antoon essentially tells us the important part, which is he was brought here as a starving Italian disillusioned that, that these fascists had run his country into the ground. And he comes to America, the land of plenty, the land that made him strong, the land that made him, you know, what he is today. Yeah, and how he would—he took a blood oath that he would do anything. It would do whatever it takes to become an American. Mm-hmm. He carved <laughs> it in stone, right? He carves it in stone, and what it's what he's being asked of now is the murder of black child. Mm-hmm. Which, which by the way, Satchel is one of the cutest kids I've seen <laughs> in a television show in a long time. This this yeah. poor kid, so oh innocent, my God. so naive. My heart melts every time I see him. And the yeah. thing is, is like. That's a kind of a little bit of an unforced error because I, I feel like Satchel's portrayed as being smart and perceptive. He's like still still waters run deep kind of guy. There's so many flashing red shots that you're going that these people are going to kill you. That's delivered by Satchel, like his the mom crossing himself and going "Adios mio, what's going?" And mm-hmm. you know this guy talking and like, "Hey, yeah, go down in this grave essentially," and uh, he just. And they don't like I thought that at first the satchel was playing it kind of like I'm scared and this is but what am I going to do? But then he gets down at the carving is like, oh, cool. This is really neat. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? Maybe he's simple. <laughs> I don't know. I, or maybe he doesn't live in a world where, you know, 100 gangster films have been made. <laughs> and and we know which, which film. seat to put. Right, right. But living in a gang, he might be too close to even recognize any of this stuff. Right. Like, that's true. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I feel like we have the the benefit of like all of these tropes that have come from the cinema of Italian gangsters. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, so Antoon decides at some point that he just can't kill this kid, and he goes to put his gun away. And I swear to God, I thought he shot himself. Same here. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this is interesting. <laughs> and then, nope, it's actually Rabbi Milligan that, that, that delayed him. That moment would feel so Fargo, right? You go to put your gun away, realizing you can't kill this kid, and boom, you shoot yourself in the chest. 
Yeah, it's cocked. It takes a hair trigger to, to fire it at this point. And this guy's kind of an inept criminal. Like, yeah, you just <laughs> shoot yourself in the in, in the in the belly. And I'm like, well, that's going to be interesting. Um, but and then there's Rabbi another Milligan, like very Fargo moment with with Zalmer and uh, Swanee capture Gatano because uh-huh. like they can't move him. Like they didn't think far enough ahead to realize, oh shit, he's a very big guy and we can't move him. I, I thought that was very Fargo. I thought, yeah, and there's a, it's like I, I was thinking the whole time, I was like, why didn't the, why weren't the cannons there, like waiting in the wings, like yeah. as soon as the guns, like you know, like yeah, these are badasses, but if you wanted them to capture them alive, what was the plan there? Right. <laughs> the capture this human wrecking ball with a twelve inch butcher knife. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Rabbi Milligan rushes in and you know sees if Satchel's okay and tells him like, look, I'm gonna give you the choice I was never got. I was drafted as a child soldier. I'm going to get you out. And it's it's heartbreaking when this sweet boy says, am I going home? And he goes, that's not safe either. <laughs> yeah. And so what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you someplace safe and quiet. And we're going to let all this blow over. And then if you want to go back home afterwards, I will take you there. And Satchel affirms that he trusts him. And he says he's scared. And Rabbi says he is too. And that's where the episode ends. But we still got... A little bit of business. Did you have, do you have anything else you want to talk about in the in the canon business or the Fada business before we move to the Mayflower business? I just think it's interesting. Uh, you know, if he does actually get a choice and he does actually turn out to be Mike Milligan, uh, the choice that he made is fairly interesting, given that he's part of the Kansas City Mafia, uh, who is maybe run by maybe run by the New York Italians. I, it's a good question because Joe Bulow shows up in this episode and I don't know if we have feedback about this, but I'm going to talk about it. Joe talk Bulow, it. if you don't remember, is is Brad Garrett's uh, character from season two who is like a fairly fairly high up. He's he's the boss of Mike oh, Milligan. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Yeah. Damn, um, I didn't make that connection. So, so there's a lot of implications here that like New York... Italian mafia is running the Kansas City mafia in the 70s, right? Well, and that checks out with like I just recently watched Casino and that's like all about it that the Kansas City branch of the Italian family is what was running directly the the money operations in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. So yeah. like yeah, so that, all, totally that, all, that all checks out. Um and I just think it's it's funny to to see the choice that he makes is to go right back into this life with a new organization. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it doesn't end well for him. And that's assuming he gets a choice, right? Like, Rabbi is yeah. going to try and protect him, but who knows if he can. Yeah, um, but yeah, I thought this was a great scene. I'm kind of interested in seeing the the traveling roadshow that is going to be Satchel and the Rabbi on the run. It sounds like a Starsky and Hutch, Satchel and the Rabbi, <laughs> <laughs> Jake and the Fat Man. Like, this is this has got all the makings of a classic classic series. Uh, yep. Fargo season five confirmed. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk about the Mayflower business. Uh, the 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 medicine business here. Um, Doctor Har or Mister Harvard, I guess. Uh, calls Nurse Mayflower into his office about this anonymous letter he's received. We saw Ethel Rita drafting this last episode. Am I crazy, or is it not an anonymous letter? Does it? Act- she signed a fake name on that, right? Oh, I thought it. No, I thought it just says Mister Harvard. I, I, I didn't okay. the, the outside of the envelope just was addressed to him. It, it certainly it was. But I thought I remembered last episode that when she was writing it, she gave a fake name. 
You could be right, and then he was pretty coy about um, it. There's a couple things there he was coy about, like uh, she asked to see the letter, and he says no. <laughs> God. But then he 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 puts it in his top drawer, and the camera follows it there, and or it so his you, hand follows it there, right? Like you she, might be you might be right that 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 she did sign some kind of fictitious. Now she does kind of like uh, <laughs> Kill Bill the Bride, <laughs> like it didn't have the. But like when she started seeing the handwriting, uh huh. Mayflower has a nice sample of Ethel Rita's handwriting. Oh, yeah. It's something we talked about a couple episodes ago. She left her journal inside Nurse Mayflower's closet of horrors. <laughs> her her trophy right. room. I wonder if she realizes she has that sample because, like the, the you know the question is like, oh, does she recognize the handwriting? Has she read that journal? Does she know it's well, even in there yet? I'm not sure. Yeah, and like, is that the reason she's being so good at the new hospital? Is that she knows that this has, she's got this uh, kind of hanging over her head that she's been fretting about uh, what, uh, you know, Ethel Rita knows. Um, I, I Yeah, I don't know. Has she, you're right. Has she actually realized that yet? I feel like the, that, that, rage fuge state she went into kind of implies she has but yeah um definitely there's the, the there's that to be put two and two together though and make four for sure yeah but she does go into like this almost fuge state of rage um about the letter where she disassociates while he's talking and this guy this yeah. guy's diction man you know of course you know, know. it's it's forbidden to Take the possessions of your patients. It's like, <laughs> He's perfect. What? I love it. Jesus Christ, man, this guy. Um, but then uh, he says he's going to have to show it to HR, and she goes, "Oh, please don't." You know, you know, you got a, a excellent references from me, and I've been nothing mm-hmm. but good here because you were right. I I wasn't sure exactly what they were trying to portray last episode, but her just trying to white oh, knuckling kill this, that, yeah, yeah, not killing my patients, <laughs> right. This guy, this guy's got the gout so bad. Oh, I could kill him right now. Man, be doing mm-hmm. everybody a favor. And uh, it's funny because even Mr. Harvard was complaining about old Goutmeister G yeah. here. And, and, and uh, if this was an Italian uh, gangster saying, hey, it'd be great if that guy quiet down a little, you know, she, she'd go <laughs> and she'd murder him and the guy would be happy that she did it. Like exactly, exactly. Um, and Nurse Mayflower, it's like it's a great scene because she just emerges from this inky darkness after mm-hmm. this guy goes silent, and she's just got this radiant look on her face. Yeah. And then they they have this great little fifties bop by Julius La Rosa. Pass it on. Uh, it's just about how if you got a happy feeling, man, you can't keep it to yourself. You gotta you gotta give that to others. And I thought it was a really great way to to end uh, the episode. Here's the but thing. I still have no it fucking idea why I'm seeing any of that. Why do I, I care it, about this? What? Where's the Josto connection? Yes, that's what I mean. Like, where does this connect with anything else we've seen in this show? Yeah. Um, I mean, she's got her own story to tell, but, like, it's also connected to Josto and this this mistaken identity and... Uh, or not mistaken identity, just mistake an idea of her own importance to Josto. Which has got to eventually come to, to fruition, but they've just really let the Josto part go. Well, I, yeah, I, I will. In the show's defense, like this, these last three episodes have happened within twenty four hours of each other, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we're only the next day from her giving Josto the chokey. 
which was only like a day <laughs> after her giving her the handy in the parking lot. So like maybe I'm but but I still think narratively it doesn't matter. You know, you can explain right. a lot of these things, but it does feel like it starts to add up to being, as you said, you know, as we both said, disjointed. Uh, I want to start feedback by uh, addressing some feedback I got from on, on social media from some na- Native Americans calling me out for my use of the words off the reservation and referring to uh, hmm. a Swanee cap. Um, I want to just kind of address that real quick um, because I, I, I looked into it and I found out it's like, oh, boy. Um, the origin of the term going off reservations um, is demeaning to Native Americans because it, it referred to those that chose to resist the confinement on the reservation. Uh, these natives are the ones that were actually fighting against the destruction of their religion, their customs, their language, which, of course, is something Swanee has referred to in, in, in this in this season. Um, and to do so, they had to go off reservation to do it, you know. Uh, and there was this this contrast and connotation between uh, what was called back then a good Indian that would stay in their reservations and not cause trouble to do what they were supposed to do versus the off-reservation Indians, which were regarded as savages that were uh, likely to rape and murder. Um, so an Indian not cordoned off onto a reservation was inherently dangerous, you know, and, you know, they, they, that was also like a phrase at the time, only the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Um, so when I said that Swanee had figuratively and literally gone off the reservation, I, I thought I was making pretty clever off the cuff. That was not my notes. I was just kind of freestyling there. Um, because I was saying that she's refusing, just like the episode said, she's refusing to follow society's rules. She's, you know, uh, uppity. She's gone outlaw. Um, but you know, the implication when you say someone's gone off reservation is they should be brought back on or shut, shut down. And in the old days, that was literally shot shot down, right? Yeah. Um, so I can see how Native Americans would be uncomfortable and upset if they hear those terms used, um, especially in the terms of a, a throwaway joke. Um, and I think Native peoples in America uh, especially have a hard time getting kind of traction on their issues as, as, as opposed to other minorities. Not like any of them have it easy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this nation spent a lot of... A lot of time, effort, and treasure trying to destroy them, and did a did a really good job at at, at uh, in the attempt. So uh, there's just comparatively few of them to kind of fight for their rights and their issues. So I apologize for my part in that, and I appreciate the education. So let's move on to our first email again. Fargo at baldmove.com is how you get in contact with us. Rose in Kansas City has a quick note on the set design. I found this very fascinating. I'm noticing, almost distracted by, the absurd number of lights and lamp fixtures in every indoor scene this season. The Smutney's Kitchen has five overhead schoolhouse lamps. The Cannon's Home has a crazy number of lamps, sconces, ceiling fixtures, just to name a few. At first, I thought it was maybe to assist with the lighting on the set. But in episode five, I noticed some lights were turned off, yet clearly still in the shot. For example, two of the kitchen lights were turned off behind Thurman's head as they give up the funeral home and... The sister. Am I imagining things or are lights keeping score for us? Would love to know your thoughts. Hmm. I haven't even noticed it. I hadn't noticed it either, but I think that Noah Hawley's not above this kind of obvious symbolism. And it reminds oh, yeah. me a lot of like the red light uh, theory in um, Mr. Robot about anytime you saw like red lights, it was uh, uh, it led to led to someone, a character's death. So yeah, it, 
you know, if you had five lights and you'd say they're this, they, they re- represent the Smutneys, their business, and their sister's relationship, and two of them are turned off. Um, although I, I guess I would not say it's the, about the. Um, I would say it's it's both uh, Swanee and Zelmer, um, because mm-hmm. it's almost mixing a metaphor to like oh, and also the funeral home. So like if if uh, Thurman, for example, gets pinched. And another lights off, then I think you're onto something there, Rose. But <laughs> I, I do, I do love this shit. So I hope you're right. I hope you're right because that's cool. Yeah. Uh, Scott V has some car- comments here. Uh, I love the Fargo movie and the series, and I love your coverage of same. The movie and each seasons have been prefaced with this is a true story. Now we all know they're not. What are your feelings on the ethics and/or morality of saying something's true when it's not? Let's oh, pause here, I mean, Jim. What's that's, your? That's just Fargo. Like I. Yeah, I, I have no problem with that. This is fiction. Yeah, I mean, storytellers are professional liars. Sure. And like in, you know, we just covered Red October, right? They had a whole crawling screen about this actually happened in 1980, blah, blah, blah. That's, I, I think everyone's supposed to realize, and sometimes we forget, you know, like uh, there's a time when Orson Welles pulled a whole thing about invasion from Mars, got a pe- bunch of people upset. Uh, there is a very smaller scale of that when, uh, do you remember when the Blair Witch Project came out? People sure. were actually saying that was real found footage. Absolutely. Uh, but most people are in on this joke, you know? Uh, <laughs> and if not, Google is Fargo real will, um, you know, it's, it's a town in North Dakota for sure, but like that, that'll dispute him. So yeah, I, storytellers are professional liars. I enjoy it when they do stuff like this, a little bit of heightened realism, um, so yeah, I don't have a problem. With and, and I think everyone would do well to remember that even documentaries, even things that are pitched as this is actually true. Uh, you yeah. need to look at and you need to say, is this actually true? And you need to figure it out, uh, by doing research. If, if you want to actually believe that it is true, you yep. shouldn't just like let a, a line on a screen, a, a caption on a screen, tell you that a thing actually happened. That's not how, that's not yeah. how fact works. That's not how you acquire accurate knowledge, indeed. Yeah. Uh, they continue as loving the discussions of season. Just wanted to throw in, I thought the ghost dude was actually death, the personification of. When Ethel Rita opens her doors and sees him just sitting there, I assumed it's death. I mean, where else would death be uh, hang out than a mortuary? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. But then after he came out of the tub and Zellmer sensed him, I thought maybe the family has a genetic predisposition to sense death. So my take is that more as a family is haunted by able to being able to see death instead of being haunted by a ghost. Is this plausible? Please discuss. Um, is it plot? I mean, it's it's tough because like, uh, is it plausible? Yes. Is it supported by the text? I don't know because like, unless you say this person's death. Uh, you have to assert something that the show itself is not, which is this person represents death, um, and then kind of play that out. Sensing death, like, why was death around Zelmer and Swanee in that scene? I mean, I thought it was just because she might have been so sick she was going to die. Going to die? I didn't feel like she was close to death. She's just having a bad time. And I guess they killed a person in... It's so... It's... It, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting idea and it does have some things going for it um but my question is narratively what predictive value does that have or what is that you know like if it's just death well you know is death going to decide not to kill someone or kill someone are they going to be able to intercede 
uh, for somebody. Like I that that's where it would, and and that's like I don't know because is Fargo ever gone that fucking supernatural meta? Like you, you got like a yeah <laughs> seven seal kind of like a, a deal with death thing. I don't I don't know. Yeah, but, I mean uh, death has definitely been. Uh you know, a part of Fargo, like we talked about uh, Nikki Swango's experiences in some sort of afterlife or, you know, the, at the pearly gates sort of thing mm-hmm. um, in, in season three. So yeah, they, they could definitely go there. I mean, I guess you could look at who it's stalking, right? It's stalking Ethel Rita. It's stalking uh, Swanee. Those are the two people we've seen it approach. We've seen it around. So maybe that says something about their future. I just keep coming back to like uh, this is directly connected to Zalmer and Debril and their family, and yeah. it was explicitly that connection made with with what uh, Swanee said. So mm. uh, it feels, and they said the word haunt, you know, like they, this thing haunts people. Uh, but they've also referenced the devil, you know, um, mm. in, in in terms like that too, and the shadows and things that cling to people. So I, it's yeah, if you want to say it's a personification of death. Uh, keep that in your back pocket, and let's see let's see how it plays out the rest of the season. Rai Rai says, as the opening credits of episode one of this season of Fargo started rolling, the name that most caught my eye was Andrew Bird as Thurman Smutney. Andrew Bird is responsible for one of my all-time favorite albums of music, Thrills, by Andrew Bird's Bowl of Fire. He's also a member of the once-famed Squirrel Nut Zippers. Uh, I didn't know he was in that band, but I did know he was a musician and not necessarily. I did an too, actor. and I like, and I looked in his Wikipedia, and I'm like, I don't recognize, I don't recognize, like, I don't recognize any of this shit. But Squirrel Nut <laughs> Zippers, fuck yeah, I recognize. They were the Afterlife guys, weren't they? Uh, I believe so. Did they also do Zoot Suit Riot? Is that one of theirs? Could be, could be. Um, yeah, they they yeah, they no, got a couple I, of popular radio hits in the '90s. Yeah. Uh, I was pumped to see if his musical charisma would carry over to his acting, and I'm afraid it is not. What? I do think he's, I do think he's funny in the role, but in a way that reminds me of the same way some rando would deliver a line to Candace Cameron in the Aurora Tear Garden or Tea Garden mystery that gives her the aha moment that helps her solve the case. I have no idea what the hell that means. I mean, Aurora, it's better than uh, Candace Edge. Cameron Aurora Tea Garden. Yeah, I have no idea. That's probably a Squirrel Lizard's thing or another one of his bands. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I, look, he, he's better than Ed Sheeran was in Game of Thrones. So if that's <laughs> oh, the wow. bar by which we judge, I feel like he's doing a great job. I, I have no problems with the, his performance. I like the characterization of uh, Sputney here, Mr. Sputney. Yeah. I you know, does he bring anything to the table? I don't know that he brings a lot to the table, but he's that not character ta- he's isn't not supposed silverware. to, right? Right, yeah, like that's he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's playing kind of a a, a kind, well-meaning putz, yeah, that gets pushed around by just about everybody in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Rai Rai says, uh, loving the season of Fargo and loving the insight you're giving to each episode. Well, thank you. It means a lot. Yeah. Joel says something struck me while watching episode five with the climate of the pending gang war. I wonder if the few extra seconds it takes Otis to open the door will be the difference between life and death for him or another character. I'd like to know your thoughts on this and who you think that might be affected if this comes to pass. I saw some vigorous nodding here, Jim. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the fact that they are lingering at him, announcing his presence every time he enters or exits a room, uh, seems to be setting us up, uh, yeah, for either him to get somebody killed by announcing his presence or ruining a plan by announcing his presence or something, right? 
Yeah, no, narratively, that's the only purpose it serves. Like, it's going to be, it's it's uh, <laughs> Chekhov's knock, right? Absolutely. Uh, the other thing, the other possibility, because I think you covered most of the possibilities, the other possibility is his arc is going to be uh, overcoming that. And I don't, like, not overcoming mm. and like, oh, he's just going to uh, whip OCD, but kind of like <laughs> through some kind of sheer force of will or effort uh, defy his nature for yeah. a singular moment of either heroism or sadism or villainism, uh, villainy, I should say. I, I, that's that's the other thing I was thinking of because yeah, yeah. otherwise it's just well, yeah, they're, they're they're belaboring this point. You are intentionally supposed to notice it for sure. Andy Blaine in Minnesota. Oh no, I'm sorry, Andy from Blaine, Minnesota. Fargo is my favorite show, and I'd like to shout out my buddy Tony, who told me about your wonderful podcast. Well, thanks for calling our podcast wonderful, and Tony, thanks for being a cool <laughs> dude and, and getting the word out. Uh-huh. He says, I'm loving the season, but I think Jason Schwartzman is miscast in the role of Josto. Mm-hmm. I think he's great in the comedic parts, but I don't think he pulls off the tough guy bit at all. Think about his America Loves a Crime Story speech. I don't buy him as the guy with the gat. I meant to mention that last episode, that he... Can't even properly do the onomatopoeia of a gat. <laughs> like, there's a lot of ways you can do like a Tommy gun sound, and whatever he did is not it. He was a colicky pig, uh, not not a Tommy gun or a gat. You know? Yeah, he Jason Schwartzman likes to make interesting choices with his acting, mm-hmm. and most of the time that serves him very well. He maybe needs to show another side of himself in this show but i haven't i I'm, I'm with you i haven't really seen it so far i think he he's okay he's just not great i know we had similar concerns about chris rock in yeah. the beginning of the season and i think he's largely uh completely put those to rest like he's a funny guy but he also can be menacing and cool and calculating Josto's just a fool. Like, all these Fada boys seem like they're idiots uh, one way or another. Um, yeah. Like I said, we've got, we've. I mean, maybe Zero is the Michael Corleone, but we've got Sonny the fucking bull, and we've got Fredo the fool, but we don't have the guy that actually would, you know, Loy. I think Loy is the Michael Corleone in this show, and I just don't. I, I'm I'm having a hard time at the halfway point of the season taking the other side seriously, especially now that they don't have the yeah. law in their pocket. It doesn't seem like. Um, so like, how are they? I I you know what's what's gonna what's gonna happen? Um, and I'm trying to think of like how Rabbi Milligan uh, going rogue. That is going to the Italians are going to know something's up. The Fadas are going to know that something happened. Oh, yeah. Rabbi Milligan went missing, never even checked in with the the consigliere and mm-hmm. Antune never came back and there's no body. Uh, the cannons are going to think that they shot a son. Yes. So, which which is what Josto wanted anyway, right? He just wanted to blame it on Kalamita. Yeah, but I don't think they're ready for this jelly uh, that's going to be. <laughs> oh, I agree. Yeah, they need the guys from New York to come in, and they haven't they haven't met their conditions yet. I neither of them. <laughs> no, um, an evil like the consigliere, the only guy that he, the only guy in his fucking series on that side that seems smart. Yeah, look at him. He's flopping like a landed fish in this episode. He's scared <laughs> to death. 
Because he's like, none of this, like, okay, we, because he's like, okay, we have to sue for peace. We don't have the strength for war. And we're not going to get the strength unless New York backs us. So we have to. And when you look at his face, when Josto says, oh, we're just going to give up. We're just going to give in. He's just like, oh, God, I can't, you know, he's the old man that's going to have to clean up these these little boys messes. And he he's can't he's not going to be able to do it. Yeah, I'll say in in Schwartzman's defense. Hey, I'm not sure he's he's perfectly cast in this, but honestly, I don't know who you cast in this because Fargo was trying to do a very very specific and difficult thing with his character, Mm -hmm. which is to make a believably uh, threatening gangster also look like a bit of a bumbling idiot, Um, a bit of a... It's not even that he's a fuck-up necessarily. It's that he's not taking himself seriously enough. It's... Mm -mm. And that's a really damn hard thing to nail. And I don't know if you write... If you cast Schwartzman and then you write around him and say okay this is what schwartzman can do so let's lean into it if that's how they got to that character or if this is a case of like let's write a a gangster in fargo which they've done many times over and it has worked right um and then let's cast schwartzman as that guy and it's not quite working but yeah it's it's a very specific and difficult thing to do so i don't want to take too much away from him i just think I i don't know who you who you cast in this that can pull that off but Schwartzman uh, yeah. isn't a bad guess. And I'll, I'm also going to throw out that I'm not even sure that this show is not getting exactly what it wants out of Schwartzman. Like, we yeah. might be, all of our uh-huh. analysis, like, of the Fadas might be just dead on. They're just bad. They're just bad at crime. <laughs> and uh-huh. uh, this is, like, the story of capitalism. Like, a superior product is on the scene in the form of the Cannon Gang, and it's just going to take over. Mm-hmm. Um I think, but, but but my my question is is why is that an interesting story? Like if yeah. that's the story they're telling, like how are they going to make it interesting? Um, and there's got to be complications. Like I think it's uh, so. Let me let me let me pull it back from the brink and think about things. Uh, brainstorm some things that can make this thing interesting. Uh, Josto is on the cusp of forging a political alliance. Uh, to to wed the Fadas even more into the official s- state apparatus of the city. So is he going to once like the the crooked Wef go you know gets put? Is he going to be able to um, you know essentially get the whole police department? Because if if the cannons fuck up and like let's say Wef dies and they're pinned on it, they're going to be yeah like like fucking state, city, local, and marshals are going to come after them for right. co- for killing a cop, right? Um, yeah, they just so, haven't advanced that ball much, right? And the other thing I think is really key is what Lois says about fighting a mindset. That, yeah. like, even if the cannons win, what does that look like? What does that look like in Kansas City? Um, what does that look like? And they're pushing into the banks. What is that like? Y- you can win the war, but you still you're gonna you're gonna have to fight against that mindset. Like, is that the true enemy? And do you have a half season to like make that interesting? I think that would be a cool thing to try. And the other thing is the supernatural. Like, this ghost thing is mm-hmm. just kind of chilling out there. Uh, what's the deal? And the other thing that's interesting is, of course, I think Rabbi, the the Rabbi and Satchel show is inherently interesting. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, Mayflower, too. So it's it's not like that, but, you know, it's, it does feel weird that the A, that the A plot, you know, that they, 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 they hook you into is not the main story of the season. 
Yeah, I, I don't know, because everybody's seeing it that way. Um, everybody's seeing yeah. it as like the thing they're most interested in and it's working the best is this gang war. And I I agree. Um, but but we haven't seen how I, everything is going to connect yet. So, And it, it's also weird because like, so who do you think is the most, the mainest protagonist in this season? It feels like Loy is, honestly. I Because Ethel Reed has been almost absent for That's most of it. I, I felt like the framing with her being the narration and all this mm-hmm. stuff was very much going to be her, but she has really felt like a side character these last uh, episodes, last few episodes. Because she's on a side quest episode. with with Orietta, right? Like, we don't know where Mayflower connects to the story at large, and so she right. can't seem like she's on the main quest because we don't spend, A, enough time with yeah. her, and B, They're when we loosely- do... She's on a side yeah. quest, so yeah. Mayflower's loosely coupled to the Fada business, or uh, uh, Ethel Reed is loosely coupled to the Canon business. Neither of them knows the other, uh, that that other part of it. Um, so yeah, I, anyway. So that's I guess that's the the case for like uh, the rest of the season, how it's going to maybe play out. Um, yeah, they again, got five episodes wanna, to bring it around, right? Yeah, and you're saying bring it around like, oh my god, it's on, it's on, it's it's on the hinge of like falling into some abyss. I I don't. No, that's I don't that's not really like what I mean. That. Um, yeah, yeah, when I, I say mean, when I say like, bring it around, I mean like connect all the dots, um, show us why yeah. these stories matter to each other. Yeah, and the other thing is like it's entirely possible that this little 42 minute episode, which is like two thirds of a real Fargo episode, quote unquote, <laughs> uh-huh. it's entirely possible this is just going to be a rough episode and everything else is going to be pretty yeah. uh, golden legit. Like you know, and there's been. Lots of great shows. Like I, I know there's times in Breaking Bad. There's even times in The Wire where it's like I got an episode. It's like wow, <laughs> that was that was uh, driving down ten miles of bad gravel road. But you know you had to take that to get back on the turnpike. And sure. So it's it's entirely it's entirely possible that this is kind of like where the threads of the season kind of started to show, and everything is going to be fine uh moving forward in fact I, that's what i expect with this pedigree and and the talent and experience that holly's got so mm-hmm. uh that will bring our podcast to a close here on fargo the podcast if you have some additional feedback that you'd like us to consider uh questions about our takes takes of your own send that into fargo at baldmove.com or once again forums.baldmove.com is where you can discuss fargo with us and your fellow fans uh, that will do it. We will see you here next week for episode seven. And until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>